One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. I'm Ritala Shah. Take a deep breath. It's invisible. It's the air. And most of the time, we don't even think about it. But where I'm standing right now on the Euston Road in central London, well, this has some of the most polluted air in the UK. And given the sheer weight of traffic that's crawling past me, buses, taxis, trucks, coaches, it's not that surprising. Air pollution is behind the deaths of at least 4.5 million people every year worldwide. The vast majority are harmed by tiny particles of soot emitted by burning fossil fuels in cars or factories or simply by burning wood or coal for cooking. Cities like Beijing and New Delhi are famous for a grey-brown acrid smog. But invisible pollution from ozone and soot particles is also dangerous. And meanwhile, the carbon dioxide produced by the burning is fueling climate change and can be harmful to human cognitive function. We'll be discussing all of that in this week's programme, but first I'm joined by Roland Lee. He's a professor at the University of Leicester and director of EarthSense. He studies how to measure the quality of our air. So, Roland, why is this air on this stretch of road so dirty? London has a lot of people to move around and a lot of goods and services that we need to get to places. Therefore, it's a sheer volume of traffic challenge we have in London. There's a lot of vehicles on these roads. Some of them are relatively old diesels and the most polluting. Some of them are cleaner, newer diesels. But there's other hybrid vehicles and electric vehicles in there as well. And all of that is coupled with the fact we have relatively tall buildings, which means that the, the air does not get ventilated, it does not get diluted and dispersed quite as it would in other places. You're holding a kind of a small black box with which you've been measuring pollution levels around about where we're standing. So what sort of readings are you getting? We've been measuring with these devices up and down Euston Road, Malibone Road, and we've been measuring concentrations up to about 150 micrograms of nitrogen dioxide. And what does that mean? The World Health Organization regulatory limit is 40 micrograms for an annual average, and that's the level that we are trying to make sure that all areas are below for human health. And therefore, 150 micrograms for short periods is maybe not that harmful, but the challenge we have in London is quite often we have places where you'll have an annual average of 70 or 80 micrograms, and to be living and working in those kind of concentrations will have an impact on your health. You and I will probably stand here for about 10 minutes, but there's people who live here, who work here. There's a building literally in front of us that has got lots of windows open. What does it mean for them? We have a fundamental challenge for those people who commute into London every day and work in this environment, and there's an occupational health challenge for the office workers. But that's even more so for those people who are driving in this environment, whether that's taxi drivers, bus drivers, train drivers, or those people driving HGVs or, or private passenger vehicles here. We also have the challenge for the residents. They are not only living in this environment um, day in, day out, but their children are growing up here and their, their lungs and their respiratory health development will be impacted by the pollution levels around us. Today is a relatively sunny day. There's a light breeze. Does that make any difference? The amount of wind in a, in, on a given day will make a significant difference to the amount of pollution we have. A strong Atlantic wind will clean out the air much, much faster than really stagnant conditions particularly here where you've got deep street canyons, so the buildings are tall, the direction of the wind and the strength of the wind will make a big difference to how much pollution there is in the air, and therefore our ability to model that and understand that will help with our ability to manage the human exposure. And we're standing next to a scrap of grass, which has got several big trees on it. Do they help? 
Trees in particular help with particulates because the leaves will trap those particulates and rain will then clean them. And it's surprising how small a bit of parkland you need to be able to significantly improve the air quality. You don't need to get that far away from a road and into a green space to have a significantly cleaner air that will be better for your health. Plenty to think about there. We'll go back and discuss all this with our panel. Roly, thanks very much. And back in the calm and I think clean air of the studio, let's hear from our panel now. Here with me in London are Dr Audrey de Nazelle. She's from Imperial College's Centre for Environmental Policy. Dr Gary Fuller, who's an air pollution scientist at King's College in London and is the author of The Invisible Killer, The Rising Global Threat of Air Pollution and How We Can Fight Back. Also joining us, Anumita Roy Chowdhury, who's from the Centre for Science and Environment in Delhi, which is, of course, one of the most polluted cities in the world and Dr Maria Neira. She's the Director of the Department of Public Health and Environment at the World Health Organization and she's in New York City. I want to begin by assessing the scale of the problem of air pollution. What is it and why is it bad? We heard from Roland Lee there describing some of the issues in London but I want to ask each of you, taking in your area of expertise, to give us an idea of what more we should be worrying about and working on. Maria Neira, first of all, air pollution can obviously affect your breathing, but what are the other key health issues? Yeah, this is definitely something that is affecting our health in a dramatic way. So it's uh, responsible for stroke, it's responsible for ischemic heart disease, it's responsible for lung cancer, for many chronic respiratory diseases, asthma, people will certainly connect to that. So 7 million premature deaths associated to exposure to outdoor and indoor air pollution is definitely one of the most challenging risks we are facing for human health at the moment. Brain, heart and lungs very much affected, so very much of concern. Gary Fuller, I'm already feeling slightly ill, but what are the main (laughs) pollutants that are affecting us? What's in the air? Well, really, what we're most concerned about, really, is tiny particles in the air. These can be emitted when we burn things or when from tyre and brake wear of vehicles and sometimes can be created by chemical reactions. And they're the pollutants that we're most concerned about. Globally, we think that's probably responsible for more than 4 million early deaths per year. It's not really just a local problem on your street, in your town. This is a global issue that we need to tackle. So, Anumita Roy Chowdhury in Delhi, what would you say is the main source of pollution there? Anything that we burn in this city, from combustion, whether you have the vehicles, you have industry, power plant, burning of waste, construction activity, and the scale of this is continuously contributing to the toxic air. Today we have data to show that lung of every third child is already impaired, which means it's just not our health, but also the health of the future generation, which is seriously compromised. Doctors in this city will show you the pictures of the lungs, and they are black. And they literally look like the lungs of coal miners. So you can therefore figure out what a serious public health crisis that we are experiencing right now. But that is also a result of the very rapid growth. It's a mega city, 17 to 18 million people living here. And also with this climatic disadvantage, it's landlocked. There is no breeze to blow it away. Audrey de Nazelle, the work you do takes in a number of big research areas. In some ways, it really illustrates the breadth of this problem. So you look at everything from environmental science to what else? 
So, yeah, and your, your question about the scale of the problem, I think, is quite interesting because I, know, I think it's undeniable the scale of the issue from really affecting us throughout every stage of our lives, every organ of our body. But to me, what's interesting is the scale of the opportunities. And that's really what I'm interested in, is looking at, as you say, we look at environmental issues, but health issues much more broadly, thinking the way we address air pollution, the way we uh, develop policies to address air pollution is a huge opportunity for much greater health impacts. And that's and I think the angle to me that's a, a nice feature of air pollution is actually it represents also an opportunity for improvement. So there's economics, there's urban planning, all kinds of things to think about when you tackle air pollution. Yes, so my work really is about integrating these different uh, fields of urban planning, transportation, economics, etc. Yeah. Fantastic. So we've got a sense of the ground we have to cover and there's an awful lot of it. Let's think about in more detail what are the biggest sources of air pollution. Gary Fuller, you've talked about particulates, but what specifically and and where does it come from? It really depends on where you are in the world. Our journeys here to the studio in London, Mm -hmm. some of the main sources we would have experienced would be the diesel exhausts of the vehicles around us. But wintertime, London has huge problems with wood burning for instance. Agriculture, we forget about that often in our policies to control air pollution, but the fertiliser and the manure that's used on the lands around our cities has a heavy influence on air pollution. Anumitha Roy Chowdhury in Delhi, would that be a similar picture or would there be different issues that are driving the air pollution? Today we are not only recording very high level of particulate pollution, but it is also the mixture. It's just a combination of pollutants and they're all of them going up together. And it's a really heavy cocktail of that pollutants, which is making the air extremely toxic. What is very unique about our part of the world is the informality, the informal economics, and therefore widely dispersed sources. That because we are not being able to manage our waste better, so the burning of waste, the unregulated construction activities that is happening all across, and the the explosive increase in vehicle numbers, and the industrial activities which are small and without proper pollution control systems. Audrey Denizel, at the moment we've talked about urban areas, London, Delhi, I could name Beijing, many other cities around the world. But is it fair to say that this is only an urban problem? No, it's not an urban problem, although I I must admit that most of my research is urban focused. I think uh, because the way we design our cities, develop our cities, we tend to make them very car dependent. In many cities, it's not the case everywhere in Delhi, there are so many other sources than than car emissions. But of course, even there, in most cities, as as they grow, we tend to grow the vehicle miles traveled, the amount of of driving that we do. So the, the way we plan our cities really has an impact on the amount of driving and doing that we do and that ends up being really a huge problem Gary you wanted to say something no I I was just going to say I think to think about air pollution in the area around cities you only have to really look to the problems that Delhi had last year with agricultural burning I mean you had some awful air pollution there didn't you last uh, October time we need to add a very important element to this uh, discussion around the sources of pollution and is the fact that there are three billion people in the world today they don't have access to clean sources of energy at the household level. 
So that part of the world, which represents almost half of the world population, they use for cooking or, or heating their houses or lightening. They still use very polluted fuels. Uh, they use charcoal or wood, and, and this generates a lot of uh, household pollution that contributes enormously to the mortality. And that doesn't so matter whether they're indoor. urban or yeah. rural, does Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And this is indoor and, and is very much associated to the fact that we need to increase access to clean energy for all of those who are still relying on those uh, almost uh, Stone Age uh, uh, ways of, of cooking, uh, still with an open fire, and that contributes enormously to the pollution. So, Maria, when you're looking at the health issues and, and how they are, if you like, distributed around the world, different activities in different parts of the world, how important are they? Is, say, sub-Saharan Africa experiencing different problems for different reasons compared to, say, Latin America? In sub-Saharan Africa, we are in a critical moment because the countries need to decide which sources of energy will be promoting their country. And this will be related to their economic activity, but will have an incredible impact on the health of the people if they take the right decision, a positive impact, and if they take the wrong decision in terms of which uh, source of uh, energy they will select. So that's why we recommend them to really move to... uh, renewables to clean sources of energy. LPG can be a transition for the moment, but uh, stopping use of coal, for instance, and uh, taking the right decisions on that because that will have an incredible impact in the health of the people. In other countries, it's a question of, uh, I think China, for instance, is giving us a very good example now on declaring war on air pollution and declaring that a national priority because it's affecting their economy as well in addition to human health and they are stopping the the, the production of energy using uh, coal sources and then they are taking some decisions that uh, we start to see the, the, the results on that. Obviously, other decisions need to come in Latin America, for instance, again, and, and, and increasing access to clean sources of energy planning better the, the, the urban development and, and having a healthy urban development and, and transport policies are extremely critical as well. Yeah. In terms of just one more assessment then, in mm. terms of life expectancy, people are living much longer around the world than they were, say, a couple of decades ago. But do you see air pollution-linked diseases turn the tide of increasing life expectancy rates? Absolutely, and I think this is one of the the, the reasons why we declare air pollution as one of the the most uh, challenging public health for for, uh, at the moment and and the biggest environmental risk factor and uh, a a massive crisis for for the health community that we need to address. Uh, It's it's affecting children on their cognitive development. They are affecting adults. They are causing chronic diseases that are definitely costing a lot to the society in, in terms of economy as well. And uh, we can expect a reduction on life expectancy. Uh, and if we change this, the news will be so positive in terms of better life, less sedentary lifestyle, such a <laughs> benefits, and increasing our life expectancy, definitely. Well, so and if I can why I- are we not doing it? That's the question. If I can interject also, uh, what are the other major public health challenges in, in the world today? As, as we all know, uh, physical inactivity, obesity exactly. are, 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 are major public health challenges. And what we're starting to see also is that uh, we recommend to people to walk and bike so that they can get their yeah. daily physical activity. 
And we're starting to see that for some people, some older people or some very high levels of air pollution, some of the health outcomes of physical activity are actually attenuated or even completely canceled out at high levels of air pollution. So we're not even getting the benefits of the other lifestyle factors that could be helping us out. Well, let's think about the health aspects of air pollution in a bit more detail. Here's another view from Delhi. My name is Tanvi Sodhani. I'm 22 years old. With an exception of two years, I have spent my entire life in New Delhi and I've watched the city decay just as much as it has developed. I have a two-hour commute to the university every day, which means an exposure to the poisonous air that a city continues to breathe in. Thanks to the rainy weather, the pollution in the air has cleared up a bit, but that's temporary. Come Diwali, the firecrackers will trigger a gloom that will last throughout the winter. The polluted air will swallow the city. Wearing a mask to filter the air, it becomes a necessity. People, including children, prefer to exercise at gyms rather than use the public parks, just so they can protect themselves from the risk of developing a breathing problem or triggering asthma. I too got an allergic cold that lasted for over four months, and there was nothing I could do about it. I now live with the sad reality that the one activity that keeps me alive, breathing, is also the one that is slowly killing me. Anamita, you'll recognise that description of, of life in Delhi. People know the air is polluted, but do they fully understand the health risks? And is it changing the way people live? And, and I guess we're talking about the wealthiest people who have choices. That's the new and very interesting development in Delhi right now, because someone like me who has been now with this air pollution campaign for over 20 years, and I have seen that when we had begun, there was barely any conversation around air pollution and public health risk in this city. And then the denial was so easy, then one could just dismiss the problem because people were not clear about what was going on. But compared to that, today, there's a lot more conversation in this city. And we do feel that the middle class, the new middle class, they are beginning to understand there's a lot more information out in the public domain, medical community engaging to inform people. And that is slowly changing and sharpening public opinion. And I think that is a very important asset. And for the first time, we are beginning to see how public conversation and concern is adding value to the clean air, and it is making a political issue out of it. So this is new, but at the same time, I would say that there is this, that it's still not adequate. And uh, we have to do a lot more to deepen public understanding of what is the the risk and the fallout of breathing this kind of air. And even though people kind of sense, and there are some who are coming out and that and that number's increasing, but it is certainly not enough to make it a movement or and make it uh, to help to build that kind of political pressure that is needed today to speed up action. Gary Fuller, there is more research coming out to the the health problems that could be linked to uh, poor air. So, for instance, there's been some research that says that it could affect our cognitive function, that cognitive function could go down. Do you think it is that level of of health fear, let's call it, that could galvanise governments into action where perhaps they haven't listened to people like you who've been warning about this for a long time. Yeah, the evidence is almost overwhelming about how harmful air pollution is to our health. And in the recent years, we've been starting to learn how air pollution is affecting us 
as children, you know, before our children are born, all the way through our life course right to the end. And it's not just on the days when air pollution is bad, when you can see the pollution around you, it's smoggy. It's just this continuous exposure. I don't really know in many ways what it would take to get more action because the it's not for a lack of health evidence and evidence of harm that we have this situation. We already know about it. We already know many of the solutions. But what we don't really have are politicians coming forward to actually make it an election issue, to say, look, you know, we can work together. I will stake my reputation on this. I will go and seize that public health goal of being able to reduce this health harm to the population. We're just not getting that. I, Gary, I, can I comment on just, that? Just, just hear from Audrey and I'll come to you in a minute, Maria. Good. Yeah, just to say that I, that I, that I agree, I think the, 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 it's not become such a... It, it's, it's not... The politicians haven't taken it, it, it in yet. It's become very recently a, a household conversation. People are starting to talk about air pollution, but they're stuck in a very abstract way. It's, it's interesting to me that people are not willing to take on a change in their own behaviors to address issues mm. of air pollution. And, and as long as everybody's not able and willing to do that, then the politicians are not going to do that either. That's partly because that's what we tell people. So in many countries of the world, in the US and so forth, when air pollution is bad, the advice that comes from government is to tell people who are vulnerable to compromise their lifestyles. In the UK, we tell people not to exercise outside if they're vulnerable or maybe have you know health difficulties or... Same for children as well. We don't really give these messages to the polluters. We don't say to the people who are driving, you should be thinking about what you're doing, people heating their homes and so forth. And until we start to have those broader messages about solutions and looking at the sources of the problem, we're not really going to make much progress. Maria? I fully agree. I think we need to create such a pressure on, on politicians and uh, the citizens are now starting to understand. Maybe they don't know the names of the diseases and all the details, but the evidence is overwhelming. They feel it. When you live in uh, cities like uh, Beijing or Shanghai or Mexico City or Lima, and I, I could name so many, you feel it. You know that air pollution is affecting your health. It was not the case for, for climate change. It was more difficult for citizens to understand. And now people feel it and they are starting to put pressure. And I agree with Gary that we, we should not pass the responsibility to the citizens and say don't exercise. Of course, these measures need to be in place, but we need to reduce the causes of pollution. Those are the solutions. We are working on the political side, Gary. I'm in New York at the World Health as at the General Assembly, and today they are discussing about non-communicable diseases. The head of the states are discussing about that. We managed to incorporate air pollution as one of the risk factors for NCDs. That was a political battle that we are very happy that now is incorporated. And the next one will be exactly that. At the conference in Geneva, the World Health Organization, on the 30th of October, we have a lot of demands for this very first global conference on air pollution and health, we are asking politicians to commit on a public health agree, uh, um, um, target and saying, I commit to reach the level of the uh, standards of WHO, promoted by WHO, and then I w want London to be uh, uh, um, you know, on a better situation in a few years from now. And this is what we need to push for it. I know that we are at the beginning, but this is what we aim for it. But Commitments. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at air pollution. Each week we tackle a 
a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. And do let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Ritala Shah, looking at air pollution. We're joined by Audrey de Nazelle from Imperial College's Centre for Environmental Policy, Gary Fuller, who's an air pollution scientist at King's College London, also joining us, Anumitha Roy Chowdhury from the Centre for Science and Environment in Delhi, and Marie. Maria Neira from the World Health Organization. She's in New York City. Now, earlier in the programme, we set out some of the causes of air pollution and some of the problems for our health and well-being. In this half hour, we're going to get positive and talk about solutions and answers to that problem. But there are one or two more questions I'd like to really focus on as far as health is concerned. Maria, there are an awful lot of studies coming out linking air pollution to health problems. Uh, Low birth weight, Uh, links to non-communicable diseases like lung cancer and so on. What worries you the most? Many things worries me about air pollution and I will not uh, rank in them because they are all extremely worried. But what stimulates me is that if we just to reduce air pollution, the benefits for health will be in all of those diseases at the same time. And uh, in addition to that, we will be contributing to stimulate a a, a more active lifestyle, less sedentary lifestyle, and therefore reducing obesity and all the diseases that are associated with this, uh, uh, the the obesity and the the sedentary lifestyle. And and just to spell out something that I think has, has been the thread through this conversation so far, that the research is now conclusive. There really is a link between air pollution and all these diseases. Absolutely. I'm sure that the other colleagues around the table will confirm there is an enormous amount of evidence, no controversy, and the evidence is saying that, well, those particles are getting into our lungs, but not only. We know now that they go to the bloodstream and they can uh, as well uh, cause uh, cardiovascular diseases, and then this is why we are so concerned about it. And more evidence will tell us that even diseases like dementia can be associated to exposure to air pollution. Gary Fuller. Every time governments do cost-benefit analysis, they find that the benefits we can gain from tackling air pollution are far larger than the costs. And even if you look back, if you look back at studies that have been done of the air pollution control regime in the US, you can find that the benefits in terms of public health, in terms of, you know, lifestyle and just people's longevity and uh, life quality is hugely larger than the amount of money invested in the uh, pollution abatement. So let's get specific then. Audrey Denazel, you focus on solutions. What should governments, individuals, let's start with individuals. Can individuals make a difference in this? Or is this a a much bigger issue than than me choosing to walk one day rather than take my car or not to burn in my wood-burning stove? Yes, it can be simply an individual solution in terms of everybody will contribute. If you start walking or cycling to places instead of driving, you reduce uh, your emissions and you also improve your health and and all the other ways of that actually, uh, interestingly, you improve your health in the same ways that the air pollution destroys your, your health because physical activity will decrease the inflammation in your, in your body. But there is a difficulty here, isn't there? In rich countries, 
persuading anybody to do something that might be perceived as lowering their standard of living. They can't get there quickly enough. It's not convenient. That's going to be difficult. And equally, in developing, fast developing, fast growing economies, can you blame people to want to get some of the conveniences that they've waited all these years to have? No, I wouldn't. I would never blame anybody because I think we, as I said a bit earlier, we've really developed our cities so that they're more car oriented. And so each one of us making that step of at least desiring to have more walkable, cyclable, or public transport friendly environments, we can start putting pressure on on politicians. We were talking a little bit earlier about the role of politicians, and I think maybe one of the things that makes it a bit difficult for politicians who do anything about air pollution is, is the lack of vision around it. But if you can create that vision that actually by, redu- by tackling air pollution but, and tackling many other issues through better urban planning practices, then you create a vision of a city that's actually desirable. If you, everybody can, can envision that instead of uh, cars zooming in, in by their, their residential streets, they can have uh, kids uh, chasing a ball. They can interact with their neighbors. They can uh, walk and, and bike safely around. I think if you create this desire, this vision of, of something that makes it obviously the obvious solution of, of increasing your health and well-being, then I'm hoping at, at least that that's, that's the, the, how you might, you might convince policymakers. And I think that's why some cities around the world have made those very bold decisions to go car-free or car-less. There are places like uh, Hamburg, Paris, Oslo, Madrid have all said we we're going we're to tackle this, this issue of the space of cars in, in cities. Well, uh, as we heard at the beginning of the programme, London has significant levels of air pollution. The current mayor, Sadiq Khan, has made it a priority to tackle air quality in the city. But how successful has he been? Well, I caught up with him this morning as he highlighted progress in one London borough and I pointed out to him that in Tooting in South London, where he was actually a Member of Parliament before he became mayor, the air is still so toxic that it's already breached EU standards for the year. The air quality in London is not only a killer, but it's leading to children that have an underdeveloped lungs, at least leading to adults having all sorts of health issues from asthma to dementia to heart disease and other issues. The good news is over the last couple of years, as a consequence of some of our policies, not enough in relation to what needs to be done, but we're doing a significant amount, has led to some parts of London which have benefited from our policies having their air quality improved. But we need the government to assist us. We need the government to pass a new Clean Air Act, but also to have a diesel scrapper scheme that helps families, helps charities, helps businesses move away from diesel to other forms of cleaner transport. So what have you been able to do as mayor? Firstly, to invest far more in this area, £800 million over the course of five years, roughly speaking. That's led to policies like a low-emission bus zone. So in the worst parts of London, we have the cleanest buses, the world's first toxicity charge in central London. Next year, we'll have the world's first ultra-low emission zone. So the most polluting vehicles will have to pay much more to come into central London. But also other things from uh, making sure we encourage more people to walk and cycle. So more than 100 kilometres of uh, cycle lanes since I've become mayor, encouraging more people to walk across our city by having low-emission neighbourhoods. We're also no longer giving licences to diesel taxis, also no longer buying diesel double-decker buses. Where we're standing now, pedestrianised street, but this is quite a kind of upmarket area. There's a bookshop, there's a posh coffee shop, there's several posh coffee coffee shops. This sort of thing is helping the wealthiest people in London, but is it reaching the poorest people? Well, the people of Leighton will will love you calling the area posh. Lovely area, lovely community here. But actually what you're describing is some of the benefits of our policies over the last couple of years. I've been speaking to businesses here, who are local residents, by the way, who are saying as a direct consequence of uh, our financial contribution and our policies, this street's been pedestrianised, which has led to children being able to walk across this street safely. 
business is benefiting from the thoroughfare, people walking down this street much more than they otherwise but Perhaps would. losing out on passing traffic. Uh, but also a sense of community, which is really important. They've had street parties here. And I don't apologise for wanting to reduce uh, the amount of uh, cars racing through residential streets uh, like this. Of course, initially, there's some resistance. The great thing is, I've spoken to children who are now walking to school or scootering to school, as they call it, or cycling to school, whereas previously, mum and dad would be dropping them off in their car. To make a real difference... The experts suggest you do need people to get out of their cars, to get out of their buses even, you need people to walk or cycle. How realistic is that in a city like London, which is vast and sprawling? We've got to make sure that we encourage people and make it easier for people to walk, cycle and use public transport. Roughly speaking, 64% of Londoners walk, cycle or use public transport. We want to get that to 80% by 2041. That's one of the reasons why I've frozen TfL fares over the last two years, making public transport more affordable. One of the reasons why I'm, I'm so passionate about making sure we uh, encourage people to walk and cycle is because I know it's dangerous uh, in the previous regime. So I've appointed London's first walking and cycling commissioner. One of the things he's doing is addressing things like uh, dangerous uh, junctions, making sure that when it comes to designing roads, designers think about pedestrians as well as uh, cyclists. Far too many pedestrians and cyclists uh, are either seriously injured or killed on the streets in London. We've got to make that down to zero in the near future. London's Mayor Sadiq Khan really stressing all of his achievements. He was in northeast London there, but still plenty more to do. Anamita Roy Chowdhury, when you look at that example, the kinds of things he's talking about, pedestrianisation, persuading people to cycle, using more public transport, can any of that realistically be applied to a city like Delhi? What's very interesting about our part of the world, and especially Delhi, that even when we are so worried about the rapid motorization and growing dependence on cars, but at the same time, when we look at the current, the real numbers, we know that despite that growing dependence on personal vehicles, even today, majority in this city, they walk, cycle and use public transport. So it is actually interesting that we really look at the car numbers today, which is highest in this country as far as Delhi is concerned. The cars still meet only 15% of the travel demand daily. But the irony is that today the political attention is on this 15% and not on the majority who are actually using sustainable mode of transportation. So as a result, what is happening is the city is increasingly taking shape to facilitate and give priority to the movement of the car and not facilitate movement of people. So therefore, the challenge in our part of the world is actually about keeping people where they are, which is quite different from the Western world, where you want to people bring them back from the car to the buses. Fortunately, now we are beginning to see uh, new action plans coming up. But especially in the transportation sector, it is talking about increasing the modal share of public transport. In fact, Delhi Master Plan today is saying about increasing the ridership of public transport to 80% So there's by a plan. There's a plan. Yeah. There are targets. So, but who enforces right. those targets? Who enforces that plan? How do you now make that, sure it actually happens? So that's where the compliance and that's where we have the, the weakest part of the whole strategy is that we do not have a legally enforceable compliance mechanism. Or, Audrey Denazel, then is the Chinese approach a way forward where you've got a top-down intervention and actually they're, they're jailing and fining hundreds of officials for failing to tackle environmental violations. 
it's you know, know it's pretty tough. The but world, I think we have to make the democracy work for it. You know? <laughs> I think every 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 area is going to have their own approach to doing it, and we certainly can't yeah. uh, be uh, saying that top down is the way the, the way necessarily to do it. But the, the interesting case for China is again the same issue as as uh, was just described in Delhi is that the baseline was fantastic, and what we see in China is as car ownership went up, obesity levels up went up at the, exactly the same rate. What was interesting to me in in terms of the development of the Western world that sometimes we, we kind of forget is that we see that in some places like in, in Holland, for example, there was a political decision at one point that we uh, that, that, that the Dutch cities would not become uh, so car oriented, that we they would develop uh, uh, more uh, cycling networks. And people tend to think, oh, but it's just a cultural thing that happened there. And it's just it's part of their genes. But no, it was a political decision that was made in the 1970s that they were going to go for bicycles and creating bicycle networks. And that that can happen everywhere. Even better for it to happen before the cities develop into this, this massive car uh, parking lots. Maria uh, Nayira, you've talked about the, the, trying to engage politicians in this. Is it necessarily a long and slow process? And, and if it is, have we got the time? I think we're, we have to talk more about mayors. They have many solutions on their hands. And we need to make sure that they understand that they are becoming now the new ministers of health somehow because they are the ones that need to face policies at the city level where there will be a lot of impact on human health. We need to let them understand that there are votes behind. So if they take the right decisions and they reduce their pollution, they can sell that to the citizens. So there is a very good incentive as well from a political point of view to do that. Another incentive comes from the legislation, and I think uh, Anamita touched on that. It's very interesting. We need to start to use more and more legislation and enforcements to make sure that people understand that this is a very serious a risk for our health and therefore needs to be treated as such and there are some responsibilities and accountability attached to it. Nobody can say in, few, in 10 years from us, no politician can say we didn't know. But isn't and the role of people like you to convince politicians there are votes in it? Absolutely. This is what we are doing. That's why I say we, we work very much with experts on, on defining what are the interventions that work at the urban level each city, obviously, will have their own package of measures depending on the sources of the pollution. But we work very high on influencing ministers of energy for them to take the right decision, putting them in front of the fact that if they don't promote a clean source of energy, they are causing so much uh, impact, negative impact on, on the so health of their citizens. Gary Fuller, mm. a turn to renewables is an obvious Yeah, Yeah, action. I mean, we're on the cusp of great change. Maria talked about changes of decisions about energy use in sub-Saharan Africa, but all countries in the world are, tra- are facing this challenge as we look to decarbonise so many of our yeah. existing energy sources. If we can make the right choices when we do that, we can not only tackle climate change, but we can also tackle this menace of air pollution as well. But isn't the problem, Audrey, that this comes at an economic price? And if 
big corporations see that this is this has an effect on their bottom line, on their share value, if governments see that this is going to be more expensive in, in many ways? So, so again and again, we see that, in fact, uh, as Gary was saying a bit earlier, that the, the cost benefit of uh, tackling air pollution is, is always, especially when you consider uh, investments that have multiple co-benefits, for example, investments in, in increasing cycling, they're, they're clearly cost beneficial. Major issues that we don't uh, have any mechanism to make the polluters pay when it comes to uh, to uh, air pollution. So basically, we all consider that there's absolutely no cost to air pollution. Obviously, there's a cost, but who flips the bill? So it's if we could, just the same way we're asking people to pay for plastic bags, if we got individuals corporations to pay for the impacts of mm-hmm. of their of their fossil fuel consumptions of their of their emissions the, uh, their pollutant emissions then we would probably be in a very different world today Gary Fuller mm-hmm. should we also be turning to technology are there technological solutions that that are obviously there that may cost or may not cost but that could make really quite rapid improvements there are lots of technological solutions but i think the better solutions are are those that avoid the problem in the first place for instance we're all getting very excited about electric cars but do we really want to swap cities that are congested with petrol and diesel vehicles not just cars but delivery vehicles for ones that are equally congested with electrically but are they cleaner well Obviously, it depends on how you generate the electricity, but there's another problem with electric vehicles in that they still have brakes and tyres and they wear the road. And brake wear, for instance, creates many small particles which we breathe in. And there's quite a bit of health evidence that they're not good for us at all. So some of the analysis, just to, to piggyback on that, some of the analysis that I, I am doing right now, for example, in the case of London, we see that if we compare technological solutions to reach targets mm-hmm. of air pollution to behavioural solutions of including walking and cycling, the health benefits are 20 times higher for the in terms of mortality when you have the behavioural walking cycling solution just because you have the additional mm-hmm. physical activity benefits. I have to test out my favourite theory on you, though, okay, which is this, this, this Italian architect, Stefano Burri, who's created these tower blocks that are covered yeah. in trees from top to bottom. It looks stunning. Come on. Surely that's got to work. It looks fantastic. And uh, there are so many people that would like the solution to urban air pollution to be planting trees or greenery or vegetation. I think it's great. I think if it encourages people to actually participate in their urban area to get out there, that's fantastic. If we think it's going to do, if it's going to cure our air pollution problems, then we're just deluding ourselves. And really, we run the risk, risk of wasting valuable money and resources. But From a global perspective, uh, uh, Gary and Audrey, uh, we need to look at, uh, as you say, it's not just the technologies. There are, we are talking about interventions at the urban level that yeah. will produce all of those benefits that we all expect. And uh, sorry to say, health is not anymore a co-benefit. It's the benefit of all of this. So we need to, to, to make sure that people understand. So the solutions need to be very uh, different depending on the countries, but most of them are coming mm-hmm. from the clean energy sources, sustainable public transport, and support in the way people still need to commute. Air pollution we- is about so yes. much more than just public or people transportation we have to look much more holistically if you look at the mistakes perhaps from the past in london we tried to solve the air pollution problems in the 1950s by just looking at the coal that we burnt in our homes that led to the acid rain problems we had in the 70s thing very positive 
It was, but we should have looked at the the whole problem rather than just trying to fix it one by one. From the acid rain problems, we didn't really... You know, we tried to focus on industry and then along came problems from transport. We need to be looking at this much more holistically. What, what makes me very positive and optimistic about this is that the private sector is uh, realizing mm. that there is business here and they are already moving on a very uh, incredible speed on proposing those solutions. They know that in 10 years from now we cannot keep with the same level of uh, the way we commute, the way we develop, the way we consume. But I wonder we, if a, a really dramatic technological solution may perhaps in absolute terms have limited benefits. But is it a way of engaging people's attention, engaging public attention, engaging political attention. So if you come up with what may seem like a slightly, you know, harebrained scheme, it is a way of of actually visualising an idea that sometimes can feel quite remote. I can also engage people through technology such as sensors, provide people with air pollution sensors so they're, they're much more uh, aware of, what, of their environments, much more aware of, uh, of what's around them, what they're breathing, and maybe even uh, uh, t- uh, tackle uh, not only providing information on, uh, on the air pollution concentration that people are exposed to, but provide them with information on what they can do about it, what are the health benefits of changing their behaviours around it. So I think a, a technology that that would engage people through sensors and apps and information is probably a much uh, uh, better uh, use of resources yeah. than, we've, than focusing on, on technology. We've been running some yeah. apps and things like that in London for some time with helping people with find low-pollution routes, for instance, and you can find that just by diverting around a back road or cutting across a park, then you can really reduce, you can halve your air pollution exposure on a journey. Anamita Roy India is very good at adopting those kind of individualised uh, technological solutions. Is that something that's catching on in Delhi? It is actually. And it's very interesting to see what we now call citizen science. And uh, it's wonderful to see how people are actually getting hold of these devices, putting up in their balcony, carrying with them. And they look at the number and they say, oh, my God. Okay, And that exactly what is the power of opinion, what it actually shows that numbers are empowering people to challenge, to ask questions. And I think that is the first step towards making change happen. And that make that connection saying that, yes, I want to keep my neighborhood clean because I don't want my children to be exposed to that uh, uh, to that huge fume, I think that's where somewhere science is coming into public consciousness and the technology and enabling technology, helping them to become much more, uh, you know, uh, aggressive about their demand and what they can but do. I think we have to be careful in putting all the action onto individuals. Exactly. You know, for instance, it's very hard for the people in Delhi to find another alternative to burning their waste unless the city has good refuse collection and those systems. It's very hard for people to take public transportation unless there are public transport systems. It's very hard for people to cycle around city centres unless there are routes for doing so. So we just can't put the pressure on people to say, change your lifestyle. We have to be helping them to do so. We want to raise awareness, but Absolutely. to use that awareness to provoke more action. And, and the action exactly. has to be very holistic and coming from the government as well. So, yes. And again, we right. cannot forget that there is almost half of the world population is still cooking and using fossil fuels to cook every day. In the last couple of minutes then, you, you all strike me as, as fairly upbeat, despite the, the dangers and the threats that we've outlined quite well in this programme. 
in 10 years' time, do you think we will certainly see significantly cleaner cities, Audrey? I think we definitely will. I don't know if in 10 years' time we'll have solved all the issues, but I'm absolutely convinced that my, when my children grow up, they won't be in cities that are full of cars all over the place. I think we'll have understood that there's a better way out of the, this. And Amitha Roy Chowdhury, when you look at India, where urbanization is galloping apace, do you feel confident that those cities will be cleaner? I'm an optimist, and the, and the reason for this is that we are beginning to see change already. Because if you really look at the way now the action is moving, and Delhi, and also as part of the National Clean Air Program, and what we are really talking about today, the massive mobility transition, massive energy transition, as well as the uh, waste management transition that we're looking at. But so what is interesting is that for the first time now, as we are, uh, see in Delhi, that the time-bound action plan with the clear oversight and monitoring systems are beginning to take place. For the first time, this city is now showing data that how the, we have started to bend the pollution curve. And uh, uh, and if uh, it's too early to say that whether it's a trend, but we know at least that at least this city where we have seen um, action at a level, at a scale where they have moved polluting industry out this October, Delhi is going to become completely coal free, coal power free, and um, uh, you know and uh, the the dirtiest fuel in the industrial sector being banned. Okay. Uh, so several things happening, and the and this is creating an opportunity for a scale up if so we can really keep the momentum going. And build that political pressure that they do not waver from that accountability and compliance regime that we are now looking for, just not a policy statement. A lot then of, I'm sure we'll be able to see the change that we want to see. Quite a bit of optimism there. Gary, are you optimistic? I'm afraid I'm less optimistic. I don't think we can take this for granted, really. You know, for instance, the UK government and governments around the world are projecting increases in road transport and building roads to accommodate that ahead of uh, this anticipated demand. If we look at some of our energy futures, if we make the wrong choices, then we could very much worsen air pollution. For instance, the burning of wood, the dieselisation of Europe's car fleet. They've been really bad things for air pollution. And that's the, we're not really, there's no signs that we're changing that direction. Maria Neira? The diagnosis now is really very bad, very pessimistic, no doubt. The prescription is very clear and uh, we have a treatment for this disease, so we should use it. If we put in place this prescription, I mean, uh, clean air, I will prescribe clean air, then what we can see in 10 years from now, uh, we will do our best to make sure that there is better. Otherwise, there is no plan B. I mean, there is no way. If our cities could keep at the level of pollution now, we better start to build hospitals because we will need many around. So let's be pathologically optimistic here. Breathe in and relax. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to our guests, Maria Neira, Audrey de Nazelle, Gary Fuller and Anamita Roy Chowdhury. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. If you liked this week's programme, you needn't ever miss another edition. Subscribe to the podcast. You can find us by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. Email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Ritula Shah, and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.